Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Today, I am pleased to have back on Norman Lear. He's a national treasure, a television titan, and a man who recently celebrated his 98th birthday. Back in 2017, I sat with Norman in his office. I remember walking into the room, the walls lined with photos of him and every pivotal figure of the last 75 years. Maya Angelou, President Obama, Quincy Jones. If you'd like to hear that episode, which covers his work as a producer and creator of shows like on the Family, Maud, The Jeffersons. You can find that wherever you're listening right now. We've also included an easy link to that conversation in the show notes to this episode at www.talkeasypod.com. That episode is a favorite of mine and more of a general examination of his work. Today's talk is a follow-up to that conversation. I had some larger, lingering questions for him, after that first talk. What really matters at his age? Does he still think of his time fighting in World War II? Or how he created surrogate families on TV, despite his turbulent childhood? We also get his thoughts on the pandemic and our forthcoming election, his complicated relationship with his father, and how he's processing those complications now, and so much more. The title of his wonderful memoir is Even This I Get to Experience. And today, on this episode, I feel very much the same. I hope you do too. Norman Lear. I swear to God. How are we doing? We're doing well. I like it. I love your smile. Good smile. We spoke three years ago in your office. And that wasn't enough for you, huh? It wasn't enough. (laughs) I had some lingering questions for you. Oh, well, I have some lingering thoughts, so they might match. I hope they do. (laughs) Can we start with this pandemic that we're in? I was wondering, what have you been thinking about in this precarious period? I've been thinking uh, 
in 98 years, I've never lived through such a moment, nor anticipated such a moment. I think it, it amazes me the time we're in in terms of its being like no other time we've been in. I hate feeling imprisoned. Very occasionally, I'll have somebody come over and we'll sit outside 30 feet apart or something. Is there any moment in your 98 years that can compare to this? No. I, I've never felt imprisoned before. I mean, I, I have a lovely home and a lovely wife, and all of it is just fine. But having to be here, wishing to see somebody, a specific person, to talk about something specific, and no, I can't go there, I can't, that person can't come here, uh-huh. uh, that's terribly strange. I think that's especially true for you, because you strike me as someone who is actively busy and fills their days with people and events. I love people. I'm interested. You know, that's a big word, interested. I'm a listener, and I'm a questioner. I tell you a little story? Yeah. After the war, I flew a bunch of missions in the war, but after the war, I volunteered to stay over. I'm talking about World War II, of course. I volunteered to stay over and ferry men and supplies to places around Europe, and I did that because that would get me, you know, I'd be able to see things I would not, otherwise not see. One, one trip in that uh, regard took me to Egypt. And uh, I'm standing one day with a crew, the crew I've been flying with, at the pyramids. There's a fellow who's got a couple of camels, and you sit on the camel, take a picture, and he gets a quarter or something. He's holding on to the string for the, you know, the two camels. And my crew with a guide is going into the pyramid to listen to the guide tell them how many bricks and how many slaves and you know how the pyramids were developed and made and so forth. Suddenly, I, this guy says something, and he speaks a little English. Maybe it's then I remembered, because ever since I was a kid, I loved the uh, piece of philosophy. Each man is my superior in that I may learn from him or her. And I thought, I would rather be with this guy holding the camels and talk to him than listen to somebody tell me about bricks and cement and slaves and such. And I had the most wonderful talk with him. So that's the way I feel. I believe that uh, each is my superior in that there is something I could learn. Embedded in that is this idea that you have to at least respect. You don't have to like, but you have to at least respect the stranger that you're talking to. Yes. Well, it's easy to respect the stranger if you believe that he or she has some piece of information that would you know, better your understanding of life. Do you think Americans are more respectful of each other now than when you were growing up in the 30s and 40s? Oh, that's such a big, good question. Are we more respectful of one another now than we were? I, I don't see evidence of that. I don't see evidence of... Uh, it going in the other direction or, you know, in any serious way. But I can't see, I can't say I see evidence of our being more interested in one another. At Emerson College in Boston, yes, you were a great student of burlesque. And in downtown, there was a theater called the Old Howard. It was the preeminent burlesque theater in America. The Old Howard, oh, yes. The old Howard, how I loved the old Howard. I would go most Saturdays to the old Howard in Scully Square. And you would be watching the straight men and the comics, which yes. you credit as teaching you so much about comedy. Yes. I know you've often said that if you look at our culture, 
You think the straight man, think of Abbott and Costello, for example. They know everything. The straight man is so certain of everything. Meanwhile, the comic is bumping into the walls, listening to the straight man's advice. The leadership in this country is the straight man. We the people are the comics, yes, bumping into walls. Do you think those roles have been swapped? Do you think we have to be the straight man now? Oh, such a good question. We have to find and elect our straight men. Can we be the straight men? I, I, don't, I don't think so, because we're, we're everybody. There is the leadership, and then there's all the rest of us. And it's the all the rest of us that need the leadership. I, I remember writing several letters to uh, a succession of presidents uh, that were younger than me. And the letter I wrote, I wrote it to Kennedy. I wrote it to uh, several. And I said, I'm older than you, but I need a father in the White House. Uh, we all have to feel we have a father in the White House. That kind of leadership. And we haven't had, and we certainly don't have it now. Did you ever think in your lifetime you would see someone like this president become our president? I, I never thought about it being possible, no. I never thought of the kind of individual that's there now. I didn't know one. I'd never seen one. I think maybe <laughs> I saw caricatures, drawings of uh, uh, that represented what is existing in an individual in the White House now. He's a caricature of a human person. You used to say that your great-grandfather wrote letters to the president, right? Not great-grandfather, grandfather. But that wasn't entirely true. You know, I had a friend, his name was Arthur Marshall. He was a doctor, a psychiatrist. And he was a great friend and a wonderful man. And he used to talk about his father writing letters to the president. And every letter, oh God, I hear him so clearly talking about it. Every letter started out, my dearest darling, Mr. President. My dearest darling, Mr. And I, <laughs> I loved it so much, I made it my grandfather. And for, <laughs> and for years, I talked about my grandfather writing, dearest darling, Mr. President, letters to the president. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. <laughs> but I loved saying he did. Why do you think you invented that? Because I, I needed it. It meant a lot to me. I, you know, I believed it to some extent, as I was saying it. You, you can develop those fixtures in your life, and I think they can be like crutches, very helpful. I think this speaks to something you wrote in your book very early on. You described your childhood as being a bifurcated life. There was the reality I was actually living which I could do nothing about. And then there was the reality that was a product of my need and imagination. That was what I showed to the world and what I did not yet understand. What do you understand about that bifurcation now? I don't know. In a sense, there seems to be less of that bifurcation because... Uh, there isn't great leadership. You know, I'm not just talking about the White House and the Oval Office. When I, for the years, most of my years, I mean, there were, you know, what I would have considered giants in the Senate and the Congress. There were leaders, names I knew well that I, you know, that meant a lot to me because. I thought I could and did depend on them to lead the country, to do what was best for most of us. And I don't feel that way. I don't have a lot of heroes in the... Uh, and I ask that question of people all the time, and they have no answers. I don't get answers when I say, who's your hero in the Senate or the Congress? But this bifurcation that you wrote about, 
This was about your childhood. Growing up from the age of 9 to 12, which was a tough period for you. You know, there was a, in terms of the father I had, there was a good deal of that kind of bifurcation. My father went to prison when I was nine years old. He spent three years on Deer Island, which was a prison off of the coast of uh, Boston. And I will never forget this, and this is the, the bifurcation I, I lived with. My mother, my sister, and I met him. He got out of prison. He was on the train at the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad Station in New Haven. My mother, my sister, and I met him and got on the train, and we were going to New York. As it turned out, when we got there, I learned we were going to live with a, a, a couple who had two children who were friends of my folks until my father could find a job and enough money to get their own apartment and so forth. That was our circumstance. But on the train from New Haven to New York, sitting alone with my father, he said to me, now, those were my circumstance was we were, he just got out of prison and we we're going to live with another couple. And he said to me, uh, oh, Norman, you're going to be by mitzvah next year. You'll be 13. Uh, for your bar mitzvah, I'm going to take you and your mother and your sister for a trip around the world. We'll be gone a year. It's my dad. I'm, I'm, I'm 12 years old. I believe him thoroughly. But when I thought about that years later, that in that circumstance, and he believed it. He believed it. Talk about bifurcation of reality and, and situation. You wrote, his personality was such, however, that there was always enough of tomorrow's anticipation to drown out today's disappointment. Oh, I think, I, I think that's true. I don't recall waking up without anticipation, you know. And uh, a sense of joy, openness and joy in that anticipation. Another day alive. <laughs> alive is a good thing. Do you ever wonder about how you ended up creating these surrogate families on television for people around the world? Especially in contrast with your upbringing, where your father was in and out of jail, things were precarious, you were moving. And in turn, you create all of these surrogate families for people. You know, there was a touch of my father in Archie Bunker. trying to find somebody else to buy the house. You don't call that crooked? No! That's looking out for number one. Where does that place Henry Jefferson? He's number two. <laughs> Why is he number two? Because, meathead, there can only be one number one and one number two. And life made Jefferson number two long before I come along. So I suppose that the Puerto Ricans are number three, then, hmm? Well, no, not necessarily there, little girl. Your Puerto Ricans could be four. Your Japs and your chins could be three. Three A, three B. My father wasn't Archie Bunker, but my father would take my mother out for chinks on Sunday night. Not for a Chinese meal, but for chinks. And it disturbed me that he used that language. I don't remember the day I woke up. I, I have 82, I think it is, pages of notes I wrote about that became all in the family. I was doing uh, Martha Ray and, and Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis live television. And a good friend of mine, Phil Sharp, oh God, I remember, Phil Sharp was his name a long time ago, long, long time ago. I was working in New York doing the Martha Ray show. He came through New York, stayed with us overnight. And in the course of that night, we were talking and he had five, I only had three kids, he had five kids, and he was doing a jo the Joan Davis show. She was a major comedian at that time, and he was doing a situation comedy. And he was being divorced with five kids, and his wife wanted the uh, 
the just give me the uh, residuals from the Joan Davis show. And we had a simple negotiation that was all over, and they were good friends. And uh, and I remember thinking, oh, I wish I could do that. I've got to do a situation comedy. Once you started developing uh, those situational comedies, is it true you'd pull your hair out in the process? I, I used to uh, pick my scalp. I had a little sore, and my wife threw a hat on my head one day. It happened to be a little boating hat. And I've, I loved it. And so I never stopped wearing it. I think I'm wearing it. Yes, it's there now. Yes, it is. So once you had that hat in hand, what was your writing process like in those early days? You know, hard work, but, but joy in sitting around with a couple of other guys, mostly guys, gals came later. It's amazing. We were making money, and we were there to find ways to make other people laugh, and we couldn't help making ourselves laugh in that process. So I, I remember <laughs> years of thinking, how can I make, you know, making a good living for my family, laughing and having a good time, and then the joy of joys, making 300 people, a live audience with a live theatrical presentation, making them laugh. And I remember, I love this, I remember standing so often behind the audience uh, because I wanted to come around to hear that the sound was good, that they were able to hear well and so forth. So I had the experience of seeing 300 people laugh from the rear. And when an audience belly laughs, when it's a real guffaw, they tend to come out of their seats and go forward a little and come <laughs> back. And when you're watching a couple, 300 people do that as one, there's something deeply spiritual about it. They move forward and laugh. Yeah. I'm going to try to do it for you. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I didn't even have to make a joke for you to do that. <laughs> well, that was an imitation. How do you think you were at being in love? Well, in terms of marriage, I did that three times. So I was uh, I was working at it. <laughs> I was married once by the time I was 25. By the time I was 33 or something, I was married a couple of times. You know, this is how I got married the first time. Stationed at Buffalo. Jimmy Gorman. Jimmy Gorman. He was uh, he was Irish. He had black hair, blue eyes. I had black hair and blue eyes. When I was with Jimmy, they thought I was Irish. <laughs> we were sitting at a table at the, uh, at the Sattler Hotel in Buffalo. My date was Helen O'Leary. Our joke of the evening was if we married, she'd be Helen O'Leary Lear. <laughs> there was a telephone booth 10 feet away as the circus bar was turning. We were coming closer to it. And I got up and I went to the phone and I called Charlotte Rosen, who I hadn't talked to in well over a year, but we had been close. We were dating for several years before that. We were not engaged, but you know, on that track before we broke up. I went to the phone. I called her. When she picked up the phone, I said, hello. And she said, Norman. And I was knocked out that a year later, just with hello, she gave me this, oh, Norman. I, and I heard myself say within a minute, would you like to come up to uh, Buffalo uh, and we'll get married? And she said yes. And two weeks later, she and her folks and my folks came to Buffalo. <laughs> my father came with a friend to be my best man. <laughs> and I said, Dad, Mr. Cutler is your friend. He's not my friend. Jimmy Gorman is my best man. He's my friend. Norman, my father said, 
he's come he's come all the way up here to Buffalo. We we can't disappoint him. And I'll be a son of a bitch. He was my best man. <laughs> you couldn't say no to your father. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't. Do you think you're a romantic person? I think so, yeah. Because of your love of people? Yes. When I talk about looking at a couple of hundred people laughing and, and finding it and, and feeling that to be a deep spiritual experience, you, people can't be closer, a crowd of people, than when they're laughing. Uh, and if that laughter is coming from uh, with, with feeling also, I mean, uh, we, I found in All in the Family, Maud, all of the shows, whenever we were doing a script that had the audience concern, and then they laughed, that was the prize of prizes. Norman, what do you remember about Bubby? My grandmother? Yeah. I remember I see her as clearly as, and, uh, and I see the linoleum floor in the kitchen below her. But, you know, she, <laughs> I don't remember seeing linoleum anywhere else but my grandmother's kitchen. And I, we don't see it much at all today, at least I don't. And I see her at the stove and I see her at the sink. And I see this rapturous, glorious smile on her face. And the love that emanated from that chubby figure and, and that smile. She, she listened and loved. And uh, that's what she represented to me. She didn't talk much. She never got into arguments which flared around her <laughs> from the rest of us. I was wondering if in this time you've thought about that afternoon when you went to the hospital to check in on her. <laughs> well, once she was in the home and she was sitting in a rocking chair and she was tied. They had tied her waist to the back of the chair because she had a tendency to slip uh, in the chair. So she's in that situation. She's in the chair, and she's got straps around her. And, uh, and I come in, and I say, Bobby, how are you? How am I? In, in that, how am I? She says, look at me. You, know, you just walked into the room. Here I am. How am I? <laughs> and uh, it was as dear and sad and funny as hell a moment. She also said two words to you that you carried around your entire life. Oh. When she didn't understand anything, you know, Bubby, the Dodgers just won the pennant. Go no, <laughs> she would say, or uh, you know, somebody just failed the chemistry test in high school. Go no, anything she didn't understand was a go no. What do you go know about these days? How there can be people voting for or thinking that uh, Donald Trump is doing a good job? That's a huge go-no. <laughs> uh, That's a go-no with an exclamation with, point. With, yeah, I would say two exclamation points. Can I tell you a story about you? Please. In 1992, you were the producer on a show called The Powers That Be. Do you remember this? Oh, very well. The program was a satirical examination of corruption in Washington. It ran for two seasons and was eventually canceled. But what's important in this story is not the cancellation itself. 
but how it was canceled. No one called you about it. No one said, oh, sorry, Norman, we just can't continue making this. The numbers aren't high enough. No one said anything. Instead, you read about the cancellation of this show in the trades. At this point, in 1992, you were responsible for television's biggest hits. You were at the top of this industry. The day that article went to print, Holland Taylor, a star on this show, ran into your office, angry, fuming. How could they do this to us? How could they not even give us a heads up? How could we learn about this in the trades? And do you remember what you said to her that afternoon? I, I, I don't. You said, Holland, what kind of schmuck would I have to be to take it personally? To write attitude. I admired that attitude. <laughs> I'm glad it was I'm glad it was mine. No, it didn't it didn't reflect on the show. We know what we had there. By the way, I talked to she called me yesterday. We were on the phone for a half hour, my wife Lynn and I and Holland. She's she's just a glorious performer. Uh, and we we were talking about the show. It was uh, it was it was as good as anything I ever did, with a great cast. My God, it had a great cast. I brought that story up not just because of Holland, but I brought the story up because I wanted to know how did you arrive at that attitude? If you're doing a little play uh, live in front of a couple three hundred people. And, you know, you're, they're laughing. They came in and sat down, and what you'd prepared for them has got them as feeling as one and laughing, guffawing. And what more affirmation do you need that, you know, you're, you're, Work is appreciated, and not, more than the work is appreciated, it just is, it, it's good on them. <laughs> you know, it, it, something good is happening. When, 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 when a couple of hundred people who never saw each other before are laughing together at the same moment, in the same, getting something out of the same moment, that's, I can't think of a lovelier moment. But you don't take the rejection of this industry personally. No, it's a piece of business that I wish hadn't happened. And I think that people made a, a, a mistake. I, I can't begin to understand. But uh, it is what it is. On to the next, you know. I, there are two little words we don't pay enough attention to, over and next. When something is over, it is over. And we are on to next. If there was a hammock in the middle of those two words, over and next, that would be the best way I know of, the best way of defining the expression living in the moment, that hammock between over and next. Are you living in the moment? right now this conversation i very much am living in the moment yes and i'm enjoying it i'm enjoying your smile and the mustache and the words and the and what you're eliciting from me love talking about all of this you know what i love about you you're not only 98 but that at 98 you still seem open to change you know, most people above the age of 60 or 65, or even characters like Archie Bunker or Maud, don't have this gift to hear and process new ways of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. How have you stayed so open? I think we've talked about it. It's just an ongoing interest. And what makes Sam run here? Uh, 
this is, you know, this uh, experience uh, talking to you is as big a turn on for me as as uh, you and I pray it will be for whoever is going to tune us in. I think that's another way of expressing living in the moment and uh, and exulting in the moment. You know, in the last couple of years, I won't be able to express this as in ter- as deeply as as I experience it, but I have fallen in love with Diet 7-Up. Now, for the last half hour as we talk, I have no desire to, to uh, you know, abbreviate this conversation at all, but it pleases me to think that I'm going to get a Diet 7-Up when this is over, and I've for the last half hour, I've tasted it, you know, as I think about it. I invest that way in what's coming up. That's that's the living in the moment the, between over and next, you know. I was wondering, given the isolation and the pandemic, we have so much more time to ourselves than we've ever had before. What have you been thinking about for yourself? at this point in your life? I, I can't wait to get back to work. I've been thinking about uh, my offices around the Sony lot. The lot is pretty much closed. I can't wait for it to open again. I can't wait to get back into the office again. And there are several projects. I have a great partner in Brent Miller. You know, he's a young guy, 44, five, something like that. And the terrifically talented guy and we have a great time together and he's responsible for a number of things uh that are in you know in the frying pan uh, and uh I can't, I can't wait for the world to start up again and we can we have a few more shows to do that's where my head is thinking about those things making notes on those things You said, each of us is responsible for our own happiness. You have to find the satisfaction yourself. Is working your happiness? Uh, It is certainly part of it, but it isn't. I wouldn't say it's my happiness. I've got a wife. I've got children. I've got other interests. I've got theater. uh, I've got friends. There's a lot of attachments, and they each in their own way are affirming and and life-giving. When you turned 90, people kept asking you, Norman, Norman, what's it like to be 90? What, What is it like to be 90? And you always said, well, it's not that I've changed, it's that everyone around me has changed. They think I'm wise suddenly. Right. I now get applause crossing a room. Of course. Now, not to accuse you of wisdom, but how are people treating you at 98? <laughs> They're treating me well. Uh, I think people are kind of surprised that I'm as spry as I am, despite the fact that I need a cane to really get about. I can get about without it, but I mean, to really move, I have to... I I saw the cane earlier. I thought it looked good. Yeah, it's here someplace. There it is. Beautiful. And uh, people are good to me. I don't think I take advantage of my age. You know, I, I basically wish to do everything myself. I'll go to the buffet. Nobody has to bring me the plate. (laughs) Before we go, in processing your relationship with your father, which seems to be part of all in the family, but beyond the television shows, is a big part of your life. You've said, I've been trying to face up to my feelings about my father. I had great difficulty saying the things about him that are the truth. That he lied, that he cheated, that he stole... I don't know whether it's good for me to forgive him or forget him. 
but I don't know that I've done either. Norman, at 98, have you forgiven him? I am absolutely convinced I have forgiven him to a point where I, I treasure the memory. Well, I always did, even when I was talking, I was more involved with talking about the rascal. I love that word, the rascal he was, because that's what he was. He wasn't a bad guy, he was a rascal. Um, but I, I've totally forgiven him, and I every story I've told uh, about the difficulty of being his son is something I'm remembering now as 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 fun, <laughs> as opposed to difficulty or suffering. What's important to you at this point in your life? Uh, getting up in the morning. That's very important to me. <laughs> uh, God, I have fallen so in love with getting up in the morning. And I, I wish to do it for a number of years. What does that morning ritual look like? Uh, I don't know what it looks like. I've never seen it, but I've lived it. <laughs> From the inside out, it's uh, getting up and staggering to the bathroom. Okay. <laughs> I never get over the, uh, the, the kick of that, of that first uh, elimination. <laughs> You know, the, that lovely feeling of getting rid of something and, and leaving it there and then getting dressed and going downstairs and uh, where somebody has put together the uh, yogurt and uh, granola uh, or the uh, bagel and smoked salmon. So it's one or the other. One or, one or the other, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the coffee, great cup of coffee, and the uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal uh, calendar section of the L.A. Times. <laughs> it's you know that, those are golden moments. Do you think about what your legacy looks like? Well, I look around uh, my kids and grandkids, and I. I think they're terrific people, and I'm satisfied with that legacy. They're really terrific people. I have a great, a great family. What do you want them to know about your life? How much I enjoyed living it. And uh, by example, how much there is to enjoy. Your memoir opens with a quote from George Bernard Shaw. You haven't overcome the fear of death until you delight in your own life, believing it to be the carrying out of the universal purpose. Oh, I love that. <laughs> love that. Have you overcome that fear? Oh, yes, I, I think so. I, I, I don't have, a, you know, I could have a better handle on believing it to be the carrying out of the universal purpose. It's tough to get a real handle on that, but struggling to get a handle on that, to, to wish to be living that way, that life in that, that direction, that's good. Norman, uh, I wanted to listen to something as we leave, a sort of a parting gift to you, if you want it. Okay. Whippoorwill's call, evening is nigh, hurry to my blue heaven, turn to the right, there's a little white light, we'll lead you to my, my blue, blue heaven. heaven, you'll see a smiling face, fireplace, a cozy room, Little nest that's nestled where the rose, the rose is gone. Molly, Molly and me. And 
my baby makes Love that, love that, love that. But I love that song, I love that song. Norman Lear, I have so much love for you. Oh, thank you. I, I, I had the best time, and I love you too. <laughs> and I don't give a fuck who knows it. Let's, let's close with my favorite expression in the English language, a phrase in the English language. Go for it. To be continued. Until then. And that's our show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Much love to Cindy Villa for making this episode possible, and to Norman Lear, who turned 98 last month. If you want to hear our first conversation from 2017, you can do so wherever you're listening now. We'll drop a link in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. But before we close, a few words on the past week. As I'm sure you know by now, Senator Kamala Harris was announced as Joe Biden's running mate for the 2020 election. Now, the business of this show isn't to lecture or persuade. I do feel some obligation, however, to use this platform to make simple, honest points. So here's one. In the aftermath of Miss Harris being selected, I've seen and heard fellow left-leaning individuals voice their criticisms. There is, in fact, a fair bit to unpack with her history and politics. If you're interested in learning about some of what she did right and some of what she did wrong, I'd encourage you to listen to two episodes of The Daily, titled What Happened to Kamala Harris and What Does Kamala Harris Stand For? We've included links to both of those conversations in our show notes for this episode on our website. This is all to say, there are very fair and real objections one could have with Kamala. I have them myself. But once we process her missteps, we need to get behind one unified mission. To vote, to vote, and to vote. I know there are some of you listening saying, but what about neoliberalism? But what about the failure of the two-party system? What about Bernie? What about Elizabeth Warren? What about all the progress we've seemed to made in the past year, culturally and ideologically? How do you expect us to go back to someone who's run for president twice and lost twice? How do you expect me to get excited about two centrists? But here's the thing. I don't expect you to be excited. No one does. This is not a carnival ride. This is not a movie. I don't expect excitement. This is not an exciting time. We are on a sinking ship seeking to find land. There are great big holes in this ship. We have a limited amount of time before we are submerged underwater. And too many people, in my view, are walking around the ship saying, Hey, hey, this ship is broken. This ship doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for us. We need a new ship. And I agree. We need a new ship. One that can better hold us together. But the thing is, we need to reach land first. We can't build a new boat in the middle of the ocean. We need to reach land. So yes, use your voice to say, this boat doesn't work. That this boat has never worked for you. And that you fear it may never work for you. But before we go about rebuilding a new ship, we have to get out of the water. We need to be on steady ground. If the last four years have been any indication, four more years of President Trump will not put us on steady ground. I liked what Ava DuVernay had to say this week. She wrote, People are dying. Someone I love died. This virus is real. 
If it hasn't visited your doorstep, it will. Oh, but Kamala did this, or she didn't do that. I hear you, I know, and I don't care. Because what she didn't do is abandon citizens in a pandemic. Rip babies from their mother's arms at the border. Send federal troops to terrorize protesters. Manufacture new ways to suppress black and brown votes. Actively disrespect indigenous people and land. Traffic in white supremacist rhetoric in an effort to stir racist violence at every turn. Attempt to dismantle most American democratic systems of checks and balance. Degrade women all day, every day. Infect the Supreme Court with another misogynist hack. Demolish America's standing on climate. Actively cultivate and further white supremacist structures and systems across all aspects of American daily life. I mean, that's what she didn't do. So I don't want to hear anything bad about her. It doesn't matter to me. Vote them in, and then let's hold them accountable. Anything other than that is insanity. It's ego. It's against our own interests. It's selfish. It's disrespectful to our elders. It's nonsense. It's talking to hear yourself talk. This is a matter of life and death. We need all our energy focused. This is a fight for more than can be expressed here. There is no debate anymore. Not for me anyway. And I agree. There is no debate anymore. Not for me anyway. That's our show. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. So long. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot slash iHeart.